It's January of 2004. The wind is howling around Craven Cottage, the legendary stadium of Fulham, one of London's oldest soccer teams. Fulham is hosting Tottenham, and after an hour of play, the teams are knotted in a 1-1 tie. Ian Pearce, making his debut for Fulham, gets his head on a pass and slams it towards the goal. Tottenham keeper Casey Keller reacts, diving to his right to knock the ball away, but he doesn't get it cleanly. And one of Keller's teammates on the U.S. national team is standing there on the goal line, ready to pounce on the loose ball. The problem for Keller is that player is Brian McBride, and today they aren't teammates. McBride is playing for Fulham, and he's just scored his first goal for his new team. The crowd erupts, and Brian McBride's goal ends up being a game winner. He's only been in England for a few days, having signed a contract earlier that month, but already he's becoming a fan favorite. Eventually, McBride will become so popular at Fulham, they'll name the bar in the stadium after him. As he was with the fans of Fulham, Brian McBride was popular in many cities around the United States. But nowhere was he more popular than Columbus, home of the crew. McBride was the first ever draft pick of not just the crew, but Major League Soccer. And eventually, he would become the inaugural member of the Columbus Crew's Circle of Honor. When Brian McBride left the crew in early 2004, it created a void. And that's why we're starting our story there. As you'll see, the crew achieved some things in 2004 they had never done before. And it'd be easy to look at the success of 2004 and 2008 and assume that the time period in between was one of the most successful in crew history. The reality is that between 2004 and 2008, the crew changed just about everything. Coaches, players, even the stadium itself. And without those changes, the perfect storm of 2008 may never have happened. So to truly understand how the crew reached new heights in 2008, we have to start with the highs and lows of 2004. This is the story of how Columbus won the cup. Winning the Supporters' Shield is a massive honor. He cared about the club so much. Like, you know, he loved Columbus, he loved the crew. This was not a team that was built for the league at that point. It was clear that there were a bunch of holes that hadn't been covered. Everything was just a full volley to the nuts. I remember distinctly him saying to me, well, the best coach available is Ziggy Schmidt, but you'll never get him. Episode 1, Massive Rebuild. I'm J.D. Smith. The Columbus crew didn't just lose Brian McBride in 2004. Mike Clark, the Iron Man of Columbus crew soccer, ended up retiring in March of that year. A tough-as-nails defender, Clarkie had been with the crew since 1996 as well and was the leader in games played, minutes played, and games started when he retired. Between McBride, Mike Clark, and Brian Mazanov, you could argue that no three men meant more to the early days of the Columbus crew. Not even those three hard-hat-wearing dudes on the logo. And now, two of those guys were gone. The crew had to find some fresh faces to give the team a new identity in the post-McBride, post-Mike Clark era. Fortunately for Columbus, the front office found some key pieces in the 2004 offseason. First of all, the crew acquired a savvy veteran in Robin Frazier. Another MLS Ironman and original member of the league, Frazier earned a reputation as a great defender over his career. In early 2004, the Colorado Rapids traded Frazier to the crew. The then 37-year-old defender became an instant leader in Columbus, earning the captain's armband. 
But perhaps Frazier's most important contribution to the black and gold that season was becoming a mentor to the rookie the crew deployed next to him. With the number two overall pick in that year's draft, the crew selected a chilled out California center back from Stanford named Chad Marshall. Marshall was a six foot four defender who projected like a missile on set pieces and thudded opposing forwards with ruthless physicality. He could also easily be mistaken for a person who had just woken up from a nap as he plodded onto the field for warmups on many game days. But body language analysis doesn't really work for players like Marshall. Here's Steve Sirk, author of A Massive Season, a book about the 2008 crew, and longtime writer for the crew's website, talking about Chad Marshall. Chad just always, you know, yeah, if you saw him like walking out of the tunnel, just very, just kind of like laconic, just like, eh, whatever. Now, during the game, you know, he, you know, he'd get fired up about stuff. That guy was just a beast, you know, I mean, he just completely dominated the air. And, and, and that's obvious, right? I mean, he's a big guy, you know, he could jump, he's strong, he's, you know, positions himself well, but he was also so good with his feet. And I, I think so many people overlook that. I mean, he's a guy that could, you know, he could cut out a ball and then immediately play it forward right where it needed to go to get the ball going the other way. Ferocious defending and surprising offensive skills would become a hallmark of Chad Marshall's game. But in early 2004, he was just a rookie who had to prove himself. Being coupled with Robin Frazier proved to be a fantastic development for Chad Marshall. Frazier would go on to win Defensive Player of the Year in 2004, and that pairing helped the crew become one of the stingiest defenses in MLS, allowing 32 goals in 30 games, good for second in the league. It's a good thing the crew was able to play such good defense in 2004 because, as it turned out, they couldn't score. All told, the crew scored just 40 goals in the entire season. Good for sixth in the league, which sounds fine if you ignore that there were only 10 teams in MLS at the time. Still, the crew proved to be pretty unbeatable in 2004. On June 26th of that year, the crew lost to Colorado 2-1. They wouldn't lose again for nearly four months. 18 games without a loss, setting an MLS record along the way. Crew legend Duncan Outen, a key member of that team in 2004, remembers the confidence they played with. Um, as, a, as a group of guys, we came together and we had that unbeaten streak at the time. I mean, I think it was 18 uh, games we got to. It was just a group of guys that, you know, Chad Marshall had come in and was young and just really good. And he had Robin Frazier back there, you know, behind him who we'd acquired. You know, we'd got Ross Pauly had come in, who was, for me, one of the best MLS players ever. You know, he was ridiculous. He could run for days. He was just an unselfish person on the field. And I think with the combination of guys like that and then Simon Elliott, who was a New Zealand body of mine was hard as nails and was good with both feet I mean I think you know following that he went to the Premier League you know although we'd lost some of the the main guys and characters of the team the guys that had come in at that time really brought kind of a balance to the, the guys we had and who we'd kept and it was just a it was just a fun team to be on. We never felt like we were out of a game. We'd be 1-0 down and we felt like we were going to win. We'd be getting late in a game and it's 0-0 and you never felt uncomfortable. Like, it was it was hard to describe, but it was just a, a fun year, like, with, with those guys. And yet, in that time, the crew never strung together more than four wins in a row. Hard to beat, certainly. But to say the black and gold were dominant during that stretch would be overstating it. Steve Sirk once called this 2004 team a boa constrictor, and of course he nailed it. They snuck up on you, hung around, and before you knew it, you were gasping for air. 
Cirque is so good at descriptions. I asked him to elaborate on that comparison. I mean, they were a very good defensive team. You know, they were the type of team that, you know, they, they would just get a, get a goal and then they would just kind of suffocate. You know, it, it wasn't like a very, uh, not another snake, you know, it wasn't like a viper, you know, attacking you or something. It was more of like, you know, they would just kind of get a hold of you and then kind of squeeze the life out of you. At the end, it's one nothing crew or 0-0 zero, zero, or 1-1. One one. But they were just hard to beat. I mean, <laughs> you couldn't beat them either. You know, it was kind of like a win some, tie some. The team was so good, they won the 2004 Supporter Shield, given to the team in MLS that has the best regular season record. So you might be wondering, who scored the winning goal? The one that clinched the first Supporter Shield in team history. October 16th, 2004, Mile High Stadium in Denver. The crew were taking on the Rapids in the final game of the MLS regular season. To claim the Supporter Shield, the crew just needed a tie. In the 40th minute, Duncan Outen crashed into the penalty area and hit the ball off of his shin. Yes, the ball glanced off his shin and into the back of the net. The goal was perfectly emblematic of the crew at that time. Not the most skilled, but it got the job done nonetheless. The game ended one to one and the crew could call themselves the winners of the regular season. It was fitting that the shield winning goal was scored by one of the most beloved players in team history in Duncan Outen. He cared about the club so much. Like, you know, he loved Columbus. He loved the crew. He'd been there through, you know, he was still a link to the McBride and Mazenov and, you know, all that kind of Mike Clark and Todd Yeager, you know, kind of like all that original crew era. You know, he'd, he'd played with all those guys. You know, I, I think he, of all people, probably knew how much it meant to be part of a team like that. And, you know, those, those early crew teams had come so close so many times. You know, they eventually won the... Open Cup in 2002, and Duncan got to be a part of that to see uh, McBride and Mazenov and so on win a win a championship, and and um, you know so he had that piece to it too. Like he he was very connected to the, I guess you know kind of like the founding origins of the club. You know he was kind of a link to all that. I'm I'm from a different background um, in the game than the American traditional American sports background. Once again, Duncan Outen, and then in the American sports background, it's like okay, great. The season's over. Now we have the real season. But, you know, for me, the meat and bones of it, the best team in the league is the one that wins the regular season because you've done it week in, week out. For me, it was, I think, winning the Supporters' Shield is a, a massive honor. And it was the first, I think, outside of the Open Cup, which we won in 02, it was the first real kind of championship that the team had had. Crew fans took to Duncan out and pretty quickly. A New Zealander who was drafted in 2001 by way of Cal State Fullerton, Duncan fit in perfectly with the Midwest town that he'd never seen on a map before he was drafted. Fans loved his personality and his determination on the field. Coaches loved his versatility as a midfielder and defender, which meant he could be deployed in a variety of lineups depending on matchups. Duncan played all 90 minutes of the 2002 U.S. Open Cup Final, which the crew won. For all the good qualities Duncan brought on the field, the intangibles of chemistry and humor were invaluable to crew locker rooms over the years. I mean, Duncan is just an incredibly strange human being. He's hilarious. He's a friend to everyone. You know, he, he, you just cannot help but laugh being in, in Duncan's presence. I mean, he, he's so quick-witted. I mean, I'm just jealous of how quick-witted he is. He could talk to anyone, you know, like... It wasn't like he just had like his little cluster, I mean, a cluster of friends or something within the team. I mean, he was an equal opportunity. You know, he could crack jokes with anyone about anything. As an example, 
Here's Duncan out and cracking jokes about his New Zealand accent on 97.1 The Fan. How do you keep such a great accent living here in the States? How does that stay? I mean, you, first off, it's fake. Um, <laughs> just to get started, it actually helps when you look like this, you need an accent to uh, get the ladies. So that's why I've worked on that. What would be nice to do here is to pretend that MLS is in England or Italy or almost any other country in the world and that there's no such thing as the playoffs or MLS Cup and that the 2004 season ended in a triumph as the crew won the league and a parade commenced down High Street as a result. But sadly, I have to tell you what happened in the playoffs in 2004. For some longtime crew fans, this next bit will contain some traumatic memories. Yeah, there was some strange stuff that went on at the end of the season with our group. There was a bit of a... Um, I, don't, I don't know how to put it. I'm not going to throw anyone under the bus here, but one of the guys was like just a, l a little off at that point in time, and it just caused a bit of friction within the team. We obviously played out in New England, but no excuses. We came back home, and we should have won that game. That game Duncan is referring to happened on October 31st, 2004 in Crew Stadium. The crew were down one nothing in the two-game series with the New England Revolution. That playoff system can be a little complex to understand, but basically, the crew had to win at home to have any chance of advancing in the playoffs. We'd gone away and lost 1-0, I think, to an absolute screamer of a goal, if I, my memory serves correct, from a guy, don't remember his name, that will never, ever score that goal again in his life. It was a bomb. The goal Duncan is referring to was scored by Avery John for New England, and it was the only goal he scored in his MLS career. Yeah, no, what can you do? So, happens, but we're going home, we're 1-0 away, on the road, not bothered. You know, let's go, we know we can win at home. We've got our fans there, everything. Well, the fans were there, but they were not prepared for the shocking events of that evening. Events that live on in infamy to this day for longtime crew fans. We'll relive one of the worst moments in Columbus Crew history after the break. Hey everyone, thanks for listening to The Cup. A great deal of this podcast talks about the head coach of the crew in 2008, Siggy Schmidt. And sadly, Siggy passed away on Christmas Day of 2018. Many of the people you hear on this podcast were interviewed before Siggy's passing, or really even before many of them knew the issues he was dealing with. Still, everyone that I talked to spoke highly of Siggy Schmidt, and as you'll see throughout this podcast, his impact on soccer in the U.S. was tremendous. Siggy's family has asked that those who wish to honor his memory do so by donating to the men's soccer program at UCLA, and I think that's a great idea. Donations in memory of Siggy Schmidt can be directed to the attention of Emily Lerner of UCLA Athletics at 310-206-3302, or you can email her at elerner, L-E-R-N-E-R, -E at athletics.ucla.edu. I hope you'll consider doing that, and we're all going to miss Siggy. Thanks for everything, Coach. Halloween is famous for trick-or-treating. And on the night of Halloween 2004, Columbus Crew fans thought they were getting a treat. Not once, but twice. Instead, it turned out to be a trick. Here's how one of the most infamous moments in crew history went down. In the 24th minute of this must-win game for Columbus, crew midfielder and current NBC Sports Premier League analyst Kyle Martino was tripped up in the penalty area by Revolution keeper Matt Reese. Ross Pauly stepped up to take the penalty, and despite burying four of them in 2004, Pauly struck his shot weakly. 
Reese batted the shot away, and crew fans were shocked. They'd missed a penalty. You just don't get a chance like that every day, and now the crew had squandered it. But like I said, there were two tricks here. In the 72nd minute, Jeff Cunningham was fouled in the penalty area. A second penalty kick. Surely this is the moment the black and gold sees their destiny. And Cunningham was certainly a prime candidate to take the shot. He would eventually end his MLS career with 134 goals, a top five total in league history. So Jeff Cunningham in a must win game as one of the best goal scorers the league had ever seen probably should have taken the penalty kick, but he didn't. Tony Sané did. So who the hell is Tony Sané? <laughs> well, you know, Tony, uh, I mean, he had a you know, pretty big resume, you know, coming in and he knew it. A former U.S. national teamer in his own right, Sané had just joined the crew in 2004. Even though he was a defender, Tony Sané had scored 20 goals in his three seasons in MLS with DC United before heading to Germany for a successful stint in one of Europe's top leagues. And in a pivotal moment of the season, Sané decided to use all the clout he had built up over his career to take a penalty kick that could save the season. And Jeff Cunningham, and I'm not sure if his career ended this way, but I, I know for sure to that point had never missed a penalty kick in his career, and I'm not, I'm not sure if his career ended that way. But Jeff Cunningham has the ball. Tony Sané just rips the ball right out of his hands. He's got this. Tony just grabbed it and said, I'm taking it, you know, and there was no rhyme or reason behind it. You know, there was guys that were in line to take penalties after Ross, him not being one of them. But you know what? Fair play to Tony. He, he wanted it. He grabbed it. He stepped up. And unfortunately for him and us, you know, it, just, it wasn't meant to be. He hit it with his handbag. Tony steps up and just hits a incredibly feeble penalty kick that Matt Reese made just a kind of a routine save on. Yeah, you know, I, I think he was there like well before the ball even got to him. The keeper dived three times before he saved it. The ball rolled so slow. You know, it, it, it nearly made the goal line. You know, and and that's not a fair reflection of Tony. You know, he had the nuts to stand up, grab it, and get up there, take it. So I have a lot of respect for that. You know. Um, it just, it was almost like there was a, someone had gone and put cellophane over the goal and nothing was going to go in on that day. In that moment when Sané's kick was saved, most fans knew it was over. Ten minutes later, Taylor Twelman buried the dagger with his goal and the crew were out of the playoffs. Their magical run had officially ended. Fair play to New England, they were a good side. They had really good players. Two penalties in one game, you'd like to think you're going to score one. You know, so again, it was just... It was just one of those days. It happens in sports, and, you know, it, that's why we love the sport, and that's why we hate the sport at those times. And, yeah, well, it was a buzzkill and a kick to the beanbag anyway. Sadly, the fallout from that playoff disappointment had just begun for the crew in general and for Duncan Outen in specific. Just to, you know, throw a bit, bit of extra salt in the wounds, you know, for me personally, I, I did my knee right before halftime. I said to the trainers at the time, something's wrong. <laughs> My knee doesn't feel good. And he said, let me see it. And he's like, okay, I don't know what do you want to do. And I said, ah, don't tell the coaches I'm going to play. So I went back out and played the second half on my knee. And, you know, he obviously he would have told the coaches if he thought it was as bad as it was. But you've got adrenaline going, you know, you're, you're feeling good. 
So I went back out, played the second half, and after the game, my knee was massive. It had swollen up. So he spoke to the doc and he said, ah, you're probably torn your meniscus. You know, I've done that three times, four times before. No big deal, okay, cool. He's like, you know, we need the swelling to go down, so come in in a couple of days. So obviously, after the game, you're bummed out because you're knocked out with a group of guys that's a great team. We know how MLS works. You know that there's going to be change. So some of the guys from that locker room aren't going to be in there, which is a massive buzzkill at the end of any season. You know, you look around the locker room thinking, is it going to be me? Is it him? Is it him? Is it my buddy? Is it the guy I hang out with every day? Is it, you know, buzzkill on that front? And then for me personally, it was like, okay, I've got to go to the docks in two days. I'm out of contract. I was meant to be going overseas um, to go on, <laughs> go on some trials. I'd had a good season, you know, with national team and with Columbus and just pop, <laughs> you know, everything was, everything was just a full volley to the nuts. It was hard. It was hard. It turned out Duncan shredded the cartilage in his knee during the Halloween loss. And it was a bad enough injury there were fears he would never play soccer again. Doctors performed an experimental surgery where they regrew cartilage in a lab and then reinserted it back into his knee. He lost nearly two full seasons as a result. And the beginning of the crew's descent into injuries and losses had begun. Also coming out of that 2004 season was an accolade for head coach Greg Andrulis. He was named MLS Coach of the Year. Despite that award, as well as leading the team to a U.S. Open Cup in 2002, Andrulis was by no means a fan favorite. Perhaps it was some of his odd lineup choices or his occasional deflections when his tactics were criticized. But after flaming out in the playoffs again in 2004, Columbus fans were starting to get tired of Greg Andrulis. Here's Patrick Golden, editor of MassiveReport.com, who's covered the team for over a decade. This was not a team that was built for the league at that point. And they had kind of gotten through 2004. It was clear that there were a bunch of holes that hadn't been covered in this 2005 season. And the Ante Razov debacle, uh, players looking like they're tuning out their coach. And that's never something you want to see because all of a sudden performance starts to dip. You don't have the performances that are going to even get you to the playoffs. That Ante Razov debacle that Patrick mentioned was a doozy. The crew had brought in Razov, one of the best goal scorers in league history, in exchange for Tony Sané, who wasn't exactly a popular figure in Central Ohio in the 2004 offseason. Razov had been great during his career, but ironically, he'd famously missed a penalty in MLS Cup in 2003 for the Chicago Fire. Ante Razov was sent packing from the crew after just five games in 2005, due to disagreements with Greg Andrulis. It wasn't a good look for anyone involved. But that wasn't the only problem for Greg Andrulis. He no doubt was growing tired of the injuries his team suffered. In addition to Duncan Outen's injury from the playoffs, Ross Polly was forced into early retirement due to symptoms related to concussions. Then in May, goalkeeper John Bush tore the ACL in his right knee and was lost for the season. As injuries mounted, so did the losses. On July 9th of 2005, the crew lost their 10th game of the season compared to just four wins and two ties. The team who had just set a record for most non-losses in a row now had one of the worst records in the league not 12 months later. There was already a lot of worry about how Andrelis was coaching the team, even through the 2004 season. That just got amplified throughout the 2005 season. Once again, Patrick Golden of MassiveReport.com. As, as results slipped, as, as you could see, this was a team that just was not going to get it done. There were players that just didn't make sense in the positions that they're in 
in the roles that they were asked to play. And it looked like it was a team kind of out of ideas. With their playoff hopes mostly dead, the crew tried to salvage the season by firing Greg Andrulis. Fans booed him off the field and even threw pink slips over his head as he walked back to the locker room for what ended up being his final game in charge. Mark McCullers was the general manager of that team, and he remembers the tough decision he had to make. It was it was very difficult, and any decision like that was always the toughest part of my job. But you just have to put the organization's best interests, um, you know, at the forefront, and uh, you do what you have to do. Greg's a great guy, great family man, uh, great coach. He was the coach of the year in 2004, and as you pointed out, we won the supporter shield. So when I went to the hunts and you know said, "Hey, I, uh, we need to make a, a coaching change here," um, it was a it was a tough sell, but it was clear that that was the the path that we needed to go. You know, there were a lot of things happening at that time, business wise, where um, we just couldn't uh, accept the the status quo going forward, and um, so we had to make some changes, and that was one of them. Look, I think everyone will have a different story of any coach. You know, you've got. 25 guys, let's say 24, 30 guys on a roster. There's generally 11 to 15 guys that are happy and 10 to 15 guys that aren't happy because they're not playing. You know, you ask half the guys, they're going to say Greg was great. Then you ask the other half, they're going to say he sucked. But I think, you know, Greg did well with what he had. And, and almost, I felt like the job when he got it just kind of he was the next in line it was like they weren't going out seeking someone for the job he was just there and it's like hey hey coach you know like hey uh, you've got a whistle today you're the coach and you know it's not an easy place to get thrown in with the experience that he had had at the time when you've got a Brian McBride on your team who is just a top-notch guy number one um, as a human being a top-notch teammate number two and a legend you know you've got Mike Clark who's a strong personality you know You've got guys like that, Brian Mazinoff, who also, you know, had been through crazy injuries as well, who's a legend. So I, I think it's it's not easy to manage all the different scope of people in any in any sport, any changing room. But we had from top to bottom, you know, some of the highest guys in US soccer at the time being Brian McBride, down to, you know, myself, you know, like some foreign kid that like where did he come from, you know? So I think Greg did a good job of kind of keeping everyone together. On the on the coaching side, I think he, he was fortunate that he had a great group of guys as well to kind of help him along. And he just kind of guided over the top of it, which was smart by him, you know, great management. All good things come to an end, right? You know, the way the bubble burst at the end of 04, you know, everyone kind of came back in a bit dejected. Next thing you know, results don't go your way and the club's looking to make a move. Of course, fans have their perspective as players do, and you're always going to get a 50-50 split on whether people like you or not. So now nah, Greg's, I still see Greg every now and again. He's he's coaching in university now. And, you know, I obviously had some great times with him as, as coach, and I have a lot of respect for him. To fill the coaching position during the season, the crew front office turned to Robert Varziha, another fantastic former player for the crew who'd been on the coaching staff after retiring from the game. The crew responded to Varziha's leadership and actually ended up finishing on a 7-6-3 final stretch, a vast improvement over the start of the year. But it wasn't enough to get the crew into the playoffs. The Black and Gold ended up winning 11 games in 2005, only one fewer than the 12 of their Supporters' Shield season the year prior. 
but where the 2014 was able to find a way to avoid losses like few teams in MLS ever had, the 2005 version wasn't as lucky. They dropped 16 games in all, and despite the turnaround Varzija led in the second half of the year, the decision was made to hire a new head coach. And that coach came a long way to get to Columbus. Um, I think that was huge. You know, I don't think anyone thought that, you know, Ziggy Schmidt would come to Columbus, you know, of all places. I mean, he'd always been a West Coast guy, one of the biggest names in, in U.S. soccer coaching, you know, at that point. Had, you know, been hugely successful at UCLA. You know, he'd won trophies with the L.A. Galaxy, you know, one of the biggest clubs in MLS. And, you know, I, I can't imagine many people pictured, you know, Ziggy wearing puffy jackets in Columbus to get a guy like that. Yeah, I mean, that, that, was, that was a big get. And I, you know, I think it probably caught a lot of people off guard. Ziggy Schmidt had come to the U.S. at just four years of age from his native Germany. His family settled in California, and soon Ziggy became a fixture in the local soccer scene. He was part of the original American Youth Soccer Organization, or AYSO, and eventually found his way to the fields of UCLA as a player. In 1980, he took over as the head coach of the UCLA men's soccer program. In the nearly 19 years that followed, Siggy's UCLA teams amassed 322 wins, made the playoffs 16 years in a row, and won three national titles. The Bruins had never won an NCAA championship in men's soccer prior to Siggy Schmidt's arrival, and they've only won it one time since. He coached many future stars of the U.S. national team, including Paul Caligiuri, Kobe Jones, and Carlos Bocanegra, among many others. His 1990 NCAA championship team alone featured Brad Friedel, Billy Thompson, and Mike Lapper, all of whom went on to play for the crew. Clearly, Siggy Schmidt had proven he was one of the sharpest soccer coaching minds at the collegiate level. Next, he would prove it in MLS. In 1999, the Los Angeles Galaxy came calling. The stadium and training facility for the Galaxy would eventually be located in Carson, just about 10 miles from Siggy's boyhood home. That's pretty incredible when you think about it. Siggy Schmidt went from being on one of the first organized youth programs in the United States to coaching a legendary college soccer program to leading one of the biggest professional soccer teams in America, all while staying in greater Los Angeles County. Siggy instantly turned the Galaxy around. They finished second in the league and won their conference, leading Schmidt to be named MLS Coach of the Year. And it got even better as the Galaxy made it all the way to MLS Cup. That game, which featured one Christina Aguilera as the halftime entertainment, ended in a 2-0 loss for L.A. Ziggy Schmidt didn't get the storybook ending he wanted in 1999, but clearly he had the Galaxy on the right path. Fast forward to 2001, and L.A. won the U.S. Open Cup, but lost once again in MLS Cup, this time a 2-1 defeat to San Jose in a game which was played, of all places, at Crew Stadium in Columbus. 2002 brought Siggy's Galaxy the Supporters' Shield as well as another trip to the finals where the Galaxy finally got their coach his first ever MLS Cup with a 1-0 victory over New England. Yet by the start of the 2004 season, Siggy Schmidt was facing some internal pressure from the Galaxy's front office. You see, Los Angeles was coming off one of the most embarrassing performances in league history in 2003, a playoff loss where they essentially gave up a four-goal lead in about 70 minutes of game time. Not helping matters was who they lost to, their bitter rivals, the San Jose Earthquakes. Additionally, Siggy's teams weren't winning with enough style for Galaxy GM Doug Hamilton, with one report at the time quoting Hamilton as saying, a more entertaining and attractive product on the field was needed. 
And I guess there's some truth to that. After all, Siggy Schmid was known for his teams being very sturdy defensively and for his talent at finding and developing goalkeepers. That's not always the most exciting brand of soccer on the planet. However, this is also true. Most coaches and players will take a boring 1-0 win over an exciting 4-3 loss any day of the week. Regardless, in August of 2004, L.A. hit a rough patch, scoring just three goals in a five-game stretch. It was at that point the Galaxy Brass decided they wanted more sizzle with their stake. Despite his team being in first place at the time, Siggy Schmid was abruptly and famously fired mid-season. I'll repeat that in case you missed it. His team was in first place, and he was fired. Whatever you think of the Galaxy's coaching decision, here's the good news for Siggy Schmidt. He wouldn't be without a coaching job for very long. In 2005, he was given an opportunity to coach the U.S. Under-20 men's national team at the FIFA U-20 World Cup. His crowning achievement from that tournament may have been the brilliant tactical decision of inserting young Benny Failhaber into his lineup for a game against Argentina. Siggy wanted to use Failhaber in a defensive role against one of Argentina's best players, and the strategy worked. The U.S. men's national team defeated Argentina 1-0. Oh, and that player Siggy successfully game-planned to stop? Just some kid named Lionel Messi. As you know, after the 2005 season, there was an opening in Columbus to coach the crew. Ziggy was always, um, I think, the, the best available candidate. Once again, here's former Columbus Crew General Manager Mark McCullers. I remember being in Chicago on the field talking with Peter Wilt, who's the president and GM of the fire at the time, and, you know, just picking his brain a little bit and getting his feedback. He'd been in the league for a while, and I remember distinctly him saying to me, well, the best coach available is Ziggy Schmidt, but you'll never get him. For what it's worth, the crew played the Chicago Fire on July 16, 2005. That was just four days after Greg Andrews was fired. McCullers had a long background in sports management, with previous stints in Tampa Bay and Washington, D.C., handling everything from NFL game management to bringing the circus to town. He landed in Columbus to help with the planning of Columbus Crew Stadium and, once on board, worked with the crew front office in a variety of capacities until 2004 when McCullers was promoted to general manager of the club. And now in his first significant move, he was trying to hire one of the most respected coaches on American soil. It certainly wasn't going to be easy. Zig was with the U-20s and uh, they were up in Blaine, Minnesota. And I flew up there just for the meeting and um, we had coffee in the, in the hotel there where they were staying. And uh, he still had his, his gear on from, from training, including his cleats. I remember that. We didn't know each other. Obviously, he was familiar with our situation. He didn't know me. So I think he was feeling me out in terms of my expectations and, you know, how we would work together and things of that nature. And I, th I think we connected uh, at that moment. Despite that connection, going after a coach as accomplished as Siggy Schmidt meant the notoriously thrifty Columbus crew would have to navigate some uncharted waters. Ziggy was going to require more of an investment than than we had, you know, made in in compensation of of head coaches in the past. So, you know, convincing and selling the hunts through the negotiation process of that initial contract was not simple. Look, we we all know the situation. He had just been you know let go by L.A. You know, we were trying to find our way in 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 Columbus. And so it was, it was a good match because he needed something to kind of jumpstart his career. We needed something to jumpstart the organization. 
Um, so it wasn't so much about convincing him to come to Columbus, but it was about talking through how he and I would work together and making sure that we were understanding of our respective roles. And, and the Hunts always, you know, challenged uh, any idea that we were putting forward as they should. But at the end of the day, we're able to come to terms and, you know, Ziggy not only uh, was the coach that we needed, but he was also, I think, the spark that we needed to, to really jumpstart the organization and start to put forth an identity. Again, that was kind of what I was trying to accomplish and, and what I hoped to accomplish when I took over. Among crew fans and around the league, the crew hiring Siggy Schmidt sent shockwaves. No one expected that on the list of coaches, who are you going to bring in? You know, it had been uh, Tom Fitzgerald, who, you know, a respected coach, but not same realm as, as Ziggy. And then Greg Andrulis, again, no, nowhere close to that same atmosphere. And then all of a sudden, in 2006, you're bringing in a guy who's won an MLS Cup, who knows how to win in this league. And he's coming to Central Ohio, and he's coming to change the culture of this team. It was a big hire for Columbus. You know, he'd done great things with the game. They probably viewed it as a big, exciting hire for us as players. It's, again, the fear of the unknown or the excitement of the unknown. What what will happen? Will I be sitting here looking at the same guy across the locker room, or will I be the guy that's gone? Because you know there's going to be change. One of the things that separated Siggy Schmidt from many MLS coaches at the time was his ability not just to find the best players on the field, but to find players who developed a good locker room chemistry. I covered as bare uh, of, of useful MLS players as Columbus was. They were able to entice Ziggy to come here to rebuild and remake the roster and then turn it into an MLS Cup winner. From our side of things as players, one day we, we wrote it up on the board and it, it wasn't anything tactically or stuff. It was more putting people in the locker room that work together. I think I would say was his best trait as a coach. Not saying that he didn't have other good traits in coaching, but his best trait was eventually finding the right ingredients. Yeah, no, I, I think he was exceptional at uh, understanding the dynamics of, of the locker room and the, and the clubhouse. How do you, you put a team together? How do you get everyone to accept their roles so, so he, was, he was exceptional in that, understanding the mix of veterans. Change is inevitable with any roster when a new coach takes over, and Siggy Schmidt had been given the confidence of the front office to make whatever changes he needed to get the team to a new championship level. That meant overhauling the roster and experimenting with players. In the early days, many of those new players just didn't pan out. In three seasons, I think we counted it, and it was more than 70 players had been let go, whether that were on the team originally and been moved out or they'd come in and gone again. It was it was 70 plus bloody players that were ships in the night in Columbus for a period of time there. But to have a group of guys that would fight for each other through thick and thin, would hang out together when we didn't have to hang out. I think to me, that was what Ziggy really bought and changed and Eventually, the ingredients were right, and damn, it tasted good in 2008. Siggy's first season, the 2006 season, if I'm completely honest, it was gross. The crew just couldn't score goals, and they only won eight games. But that isn't totally the fault of the assembled talent. Whatever that team could have been was never fully realized because of a terrible string of injuries. 
First of all, the crew lost starting goalkeeper John Bush to yet another injury. But this time, his backup, Johnny Walker, also couldn't avoid the injury bug. Siggy Schmidt no doubt needed some blue label on hand to soothe the pain as he tried to find someone, anyone, who could stabilize his struggling team. Five different goalkeepers started for Columbus that year, including Dan Popic, Noah Palmer, and Bill Gaudet, or Wild Bill as some board crew fans called him. If those names aren't familiar to you, don't worry, you aren't alone. Patrick Golden from Massive Report remembers that season a little more fondly than most. I like to call myself the unofficial 2006 Columbus Crew season historian. So before I started covering the team, I actually did have season tickets. That was actually the first year I got season tickets. Like I like to say, you always remember your first. That was definitely not a good team, but the excitement of Ziggy, the excitement of what he was trying to build, uh, some of the trying to see the bright side of, of players like Jose Reyes, who played a lot of central midfield. Uh, for that 2006 team, and then in 2007 played USL with the California Victory. And then he was out of soccer the following year. Yeah, the 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 five goalkeepers that the the Columbus Crew used that season to see uh, so many players who who had a role at the start of what was going to turn into something great. Just a, just a handful of parts were from that 2006 season would carry forward, but it it was fun in its own way. Probably the most devastating injury of the year came during a 1-0 loss against Kansas City on April 29th in Columbus. All-star right back and national team veteran Frankie Haydick hurt his right knee at some point during that game, but finished out the rest of it. He even completed a training session Tuesday of the following week. It was after that training session he complained of some additional pain in his knee. Doctors took an MRI and confirmed that he had torn his ACL. Not only was he done for the season, but as the World Cup was just over a month away, Frankie Haydick would have to miss that too. Devastating to say the least. That said, if ever a devastating injury was going to try to dampen the positivity of one human being on planet Earth, its most difficult assignment would be to get Frankie Haydick down in the dumps for long. One of the most energetic and positive human beings you'll ever come across, the surfer dude who's never met a stranger had been winning since a young age. A native of La Mesa, California, he starred for youth soccer teams, and eventually, as nearly all gifted male soccer players in the state of California did in those days, Frankie ended up on the campus of UCLA, coached by, you guessed it, Siggy Schmidt. In 1996, after a successful collegiate career, Frankie was drafted in the seventh round of the inaugural MLS Super Draft by the now-defunct Tampa Bay Mutiny. He played well and earned a reputation as a reliable defender. That reputation got him a call-up to the 1998 World Cup squad. If you aren't familiar, the 98 World Cup didn't go well at all for the United States, but there's a whole other podcast dedicated to that failure. Maybe once you're done with this podcast, go listen to that one. It's called American Fiasco by Roger Bennett, and it's great. But despite the team's overall failure, Frankie acquitted himself well in that tournament, and his rights were purchased from MLS by German powerhouse Bayer Leverkusen. You'd think a surfer dude from Southern California wouldn't quite fit in with the uptight, rigid German soccer culture, but... This is Frankie Haydick we're talking about. Pretty much everyone loves that guy. Just listen to this German television feature on Frankie and see if you pick up on any common themes. Frankie Haydick kommt aus Kalifornien und ist leidenschaftlicher Surfer und Bob Marley Fan. Nach Torerfolgen gerät er schon mal ins Reggae-Fieber. Bei Leverkusens Amerikaner stimmt die Chemie zwischen Lockerheit. Kalifornien, Surfer, Bob Marley, Reggae-Fieber, German, English or otherwise, Frankie Haydick translates in all languages. 
His tenacious pace, punishing tackles, and unending work ethic translated easily as well. By the time he arrived back in MLS with the crew in 2003, Frankie was well-established as a U.S. soccer commodity, and his tireless efforts to connect with fans before, during, and after the game made Frankie a fan favorite. The most noticeable thing about Frankie was that he never got tired. He could run end line to end line all game long. You know, like his teammates would just talk about, you know, even like preseason, like during the beep test, they're just like, oh my gosh, like drinks a bunch of coffee and off he goes and, and he never stops. Frankie, you really knew what you were expecting and, and that was a lot of passion. This is a guy who, when his World Cup dreams ended in 2006, he wasn't going to take it lying down. He still went over there. He enjoyed himself. He just uh, had a different perspective going as a fan. And he brought that intensity and that energy and that love of the game on the field. You know, he's coming towards the end of his career, but you still had a very talented right back who would run all day. You know, and, and Frankie was also famous for his lunging two-footed tackles that somehow never managed to, like, disfigure anyone. He would always get the ball somehow, or any other player, you see them go in for some of these tackles, you're like, no, but uh, but Frankie, you know, could somehow pull it off. As laid back as Frankie was off the field, uh, he was nails tough on the field. It would take tearing an ACL to keep Frankie off the field, much like happened in the 2006 season. However, once he was on that field, you had to pull him off, and he was going to fight for every ball. He was going to fight for every possession. He was going to fight no matter what the score. You were always going to get the same out of Frankie Hayter. He was actually, you know, and I know, you know, he's like the surfer dude, and but you know, he was also a really smart player. Though I mean, you, you know, you talked to him after the game, and he could get down to it. You know, he he could really break down the game. You know, so I mean, I know he's just kind of, you know, like I said, kind of the rah rah surfer dude and people just think of him as you know that kind of thing but i mean he he knew his stuff he he knew his team you know, he knew his players he knew you know the game itself frankie hadick was talented marketable and now sitting on the shelf his injury came at the worst time for him the crew and the u.s national team naturally losing one of the few genuine stars on the team as well as a player he could trust was a blow to siggy schmidt he was trying to figure out what he had in that team in 2006, who he could count on, who was expendable, and Siggy didn't have much time to get things right. The fans had high expectations from 2004 that went unrealized. Those same fans had been further frustrated by the end of the Andrulis era. 2006 was seen by many as a possible quick fix if Siggy could work his magic and make the team a winner. But like I said earlier, injuries and some lackluster talent made that nearly impossible. The crew couldn't score goals in 2006 either, and once again, crew fans watched one of the worst seasons in team history as a result. There were definitely some positives from 2006, if you looked hard enough. One of the best things that happened was in August, when Duncan Outen returned to the field after 22 months of recovery from his 2004 playoff knee injury. They knew I'd do the job that they wanted. It didn't matter if I was in it right back or in it center midfield or I played right midfield, you know, sometimes with Frankie running back and forth down the wing either side of me you know and I kind of just went inside and played him the ball down the side and then covered him and waited for him to run back and it was great you know and I think they liked the fact that I was versatile here and that I was comfortable like I was that old couch you know in the corner of the room that your wife says throw that away but they were like ah, we can't it's just too comfy you know so it, it was a good it was I was glad that the organization treated me the way they did and and gave me that chance to come back. Additionally, 2006 brought one of the most reliable players in black and gold history. 
a vital cog in the machinery that became the 2008 championship midfield. That player was Eddie Gavin. Yeah, I mean, he started as a teenager, you know, with his, his mom dropping him off at practice for the Metro Stars. I mean, Eddie, very quiet, unassuming, you know, person, was never much for the spotlight. But man, I mean, his teammates just loved him. A true box-to-box -box midfielder, steady Eddie Gavin may be one of the most underrated players in MLS history. And as Cirque mentioned, Gavin was selected with the 12th pick in the 2003 draft at the tender age of 16. He was the youngest player to sign with an MLS club up until some guy named Freddie Adu came along. A 16-year-old kid suddenly thrust into a professional soccer environment in the media capital of the world? Well, it's a situation that would be a lot to handle for anyone. Perhaps the quiet persona helped him adapt to the absurd surroundings he found himself in at an age where most kids are just thrilled to have their driver's license. But that youth didn't stop him from developing a veteran savvy by the time he joined the crew. By the time he came to Columbus, he was, he was 22, 23. You knew what you were gonna get out of Eddie Gavin. He was uh, able to make the right run to the right spot. He was able to use his head to be in the right position to receive a pass. He knew how to create space for other people. I think the underrated thing about Eddie Gavin is uh, he was a very good defensive winger, which all of that points to the fact that Eddie Gavin had just a great soccer brain. Time and time again, he made the right play at the right time, and it was really the, the level of soccer intelligence to, to make his game work. Eddie Gavin also had a knack for the unexpected. Quietly, he was quite the little prankster. You know, you, you'd never suspect it. His favorite game was the fumble game, where you would just sneak up behind somebody and knock it out of their hand. And, you know, not whatever they're carrying, like out of their hand. But then the rule was, if he tried to smack it out and it didn't come out, if you held on to it, then you got to slap him. Just see him walking around the locker room, like, you know, someone would be holding something, and he'd just walk up behind him. And he's just one of those people that, yeah, I mean, everybody just loved. Feels redundant to say Eddie Gavin was not a flashy player, but he, he was just a guy who did everything well. You wouldn't, you wouldn't look at him and think superstar or something, but he could get you goals. He could set up, you know, passes, you know, for goals. He, you know, he was a tenacious defender despite being slight of build. After a couple of decent seasons in New York, Eddie Gavin was part of a trade to Columbus in 2006 for Edson Buttle. Crew fans can thank former New York GM Alexi Lawless for that one. Though it's never easy to send away a trusted scorer, Siggy Schmidt liked what he was getting in Gavin, as well as defender and Central Ohio native Chris Leach, who was also part of that deal. Another Central Ohio native, Danny O'Rourke, was actually almost a part of that deal. After being drafted in 2005 by San Jose, O'Rourke moved with the team when it relocated to Houston prior to 2006. But Danny O'Rourke never played in Houston as he was dealt to New York, who by now were called the Red Bulls. There was a possibility of trading O'Rourke along with Eddie Gavin in the deal for Edson Buttle, but at the last minute, New York decided to keep O'Rourke. At the end of 2006, MLS held an expansion draft for Toronto FC and Danny O'Rourke was selected to go to Canada. But almost immediately, he was dealt to Columbus, a move the defensive midfielder had been wanting for some time. You know, obviously, growing up a crew fan and being fortunate enough to be able to, there wasn't the, the homegrown or the academy or anything back then, so uh, I was able to get in, I think, from age like 16 to, to 19 to be able to train every once in a while with them. That voice you hear is Danny O'Rourke absorbing that culture from, you know, crew greats like McBride and uh, Mazenoff, you know, Edson Buttle, Brian West, Cunningham, Kyle Martino, he was one of the guys I always looked up to. 
So just being able to be in there and, and the, the level of play was and how far off I was and how I need, what I needed to work on, uh, that was a blessing. So I always wanted to eventually make it back to Columbus. You see, Danny O'Rourke was part of the first generation of MLS players who were young enough to be fans of the teams they were now playing for. A native of Worthington, a suburb of Columbus, when Danny O'Rourke watched live soccer as a kid, he was watching crew games. When he went to local soccer camps, crew players were sometimes there offering guidance. And when Danny O'Rourke played in a state championship in high school, he played on the field at Crew Stadium. It was the ultimate realization of the plan for Major League Soccer, or it should be anyway, to foster this kind of bond between club and city. Players like Danny O'Rourke are the pinnacle of what an MLS team can achieve. Creating a soccer fan, being involved in the development of that soccer fan's growth as a player, and ultimately signing that soccer fan to play for the local team. Fortunate enough, I had you know coaches in Dominic Kinnear and Bruce Serena at the time where you know I didn't have one foot out the door, but I always mentioned to them, look, if there's any anything that ever comes up where there's a possibility to go to Columbus, please let me know. And I, would, I said the same thing to my my agent you know i talked to bruce arena at the end of that year and woman and behold will and i were were traded there via toronto i had a really good feeling about it and you know i knew there was a good foundation there frankie was always the guy i looked up to um you know chad marshall was a was a beast from the beginning um but then there were a lot of new faces in there that i, that I didn't know so um you know it was exciting to go in there and, and be able to play right away as always though whenever a new player is brought in veteran players have to think about what it might mean for them. Once again, here's Duncan Outen. They announced during the offseason, oh, Columbus have just traded to get Danny O'Rourke. And you're like, whoa, well, that's weird. And like, you're sitting at home like, oh, okay. You're like, so he'll be there. That's cool. That's great. We're getting Danny. But, you know, there's no phone call in advance saying, just to give you a heads up, uh, we, we're getting a guy that plays your position. Sure. So you sit there in the unknown. Also coming over in that trade with Toronto was Will Hesmer, who, like Danny, was a member of Toronto just long enough to be traded to the crew for a partial allocation. Hesmer, a former first-team All-American at Wake Forest, was drafted in the first round by Kansas City in 2004, but he never got much of a shot to make an impact. After a couple of injury-riddled seasons, incumbent crewkeeper John Bush was waived prior to 2007, paving the way for new blood to take over. Hesmer won the job and went on to establish himself as the starting goalkeeper. The crew of 2006 and early 2007 saw a lot of change. Only three players remained from that 2004 season, Frankie Haydick, Chad Marshall, and Duncan Outen. The new look crew had that classic mix all good teams have. Young players with bright futures, veteran leadership, versatile midfielders, and a back line that was physical, fast, and tough in the air. But there was still a piece or two missing and a looming question. Where were the goals going to come from? The answer to that question came from South America. Stay tuned for a quick preview of next week's episode. But first, I want to say thanks again to all of you for listening. If you like what you've heard, make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you can get each episode as soon as it's available. And if you could like and review the podcast as well, well, that would mean a lot to me personally, but it would also hopefully help more people find this story. 
So thanks again if you can do it. I also want to say a big thank you to my wife, Melissa, who's been extremely supportive through all the late nights and long weekends I used to make this podcast, and who's also put up with me bringing up stats from 2005 crew teams that she probably doesn't care about. Thanks, honey, and I love you. I'd also like to thank Todd Markowitz and Cody Welling at 97.1 The Fan. Those guys believed in this project when it was just kind of an idea I had, so I really appreciate them getting behind it. I also need to thank John Zadar, one of the guys who was the brains behind Save the Crew and a tremendous artist who did all the artwork you see, the logo, all the episode artwork. He's fantastic. I also want to thank all the guests who gave their time to help me tell this story, especially the ones that I took at times over an hour or two of their time uh, to get like 10 minutes of audio. But thank you guys very much for being a part of this. And finally, I need to thank Victoria Beckman, who helped with translation on part of this podcast. She's also a privacy and cybersecurity attorney at Frost Brown Todd. So if you're in need of that type of legal advice, look her up. And now here's that quick preview of next week's episode. Thanks again. He, he's the one that initially uh, said, hey, Guillermo Verascoloto could be available. I knew of him. I had seen him, but I did not know to the extent what he was to Boca Juniors. I mean, he is a living legend. The, the titles won, the victories. It's like, okay, is that like a quarterback stat? Oh, this this quarterback has so many wins. It's like you're surrounded by so many great players. Does it really matter? That was the other thing about that team. I mean, even if people weren't playing all the time, I mean, they brought it to practice every day. Maybe I'm the problem. Essentially saying, maybe I should quit. And the next day, the headline in the district, Schmidt says he might quit. <laughs> <laughs>